0: to a Baha'i perspective. I recorded an interview with David Koram on February 27, 2017. David is an ophthalmologist, a writer, and an educator. He left the U.S. after getting his medical degree and proceeded to eventually start an eye clinic and co found the Brilliant Star Montessori School in Saipan. He's written two books and is now teaching at the Townsend International School in the Czech Republic. I started the interview by asking David where he grew up and what was it like growing up there?
1: I grew up in southeastern Kentucky in Appalachia in a small rural coal mining town called Middlesboro. We moved there when I was a young child and we had emigrated to the United States from Iran. It was quite an experience growing up there. We were the first people sort of outside the county that had moved there, much less outside the country. So we were really an odd sort of family there, being foreign, having unusual names, having a faith that was not purely Christian as people recognized it. So I grew up very much with the mentality Of an outsider with the perspective of an outsider. And that's very common among immigrants in general, but it was also a very welcoming community. The things that we faced were more out of curiosity. I had a neighbor every Sunday after we had lunch, his first question was, What'd you all eat? Maybe people would be offended by that, but it was just curiosity. Just, we know you're not from around here. We know you're different. What's it like being different? My father was a pediatrician who, just a year ago, after 50 years of practicing medicine, retired. So he was a big part of the community. My mother was very active in community work and community service. So we became part of the community over years, but always had this sense of being an outsider at the same time.
0: So, David, how old were you when you came to Kentucky?
1: I was two and a half when we emigrated from Iran. We went back to Iran for a year when I was in the second grade for visa emigration purposes. So I spent one year in Iran in the second grade and then in the third grade moved to this particular town in Kentucky where I grew up.
0: That's an interesting situation. So did you find a culture shock going back to Iran after growing up until the second grade in Kentucky?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, I didn't speak the language very well anymore. So I was enrolled in international school, and American school there. I have to say, I don't remember so much about it. My grandparents were there. I was born in Shiraz, and Shiraz was the city that we moved back to for that year. I don't remember elements of shock per se, but I remember, again, not feeling fully a part of the society there because I didn't speak the language uh, anymore or not so well, and was enrolled in an international school there.
0: So what was the reason your parents moved from Iran originally.
1: It was in pursuit of higher education. My father did the core of his medical training in Iran. The professor that was his mentor that he worked with had a relationship with Johns Hopkins University. So my father was one of a few of the residents who came at that time to complete his medical training here in the United States. So he was in Baltimore at Hopkins for a few years before we moved to Kentucky.
0: So you grew up as a Baha'i? Yes. One of the tenets of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth. And it's sort of expected that a young person investigate for themselves as the Baha'i faith is their religion versus just a religion in which they're just following in the footsteps of their parents. Can you recall a time where that shift occurred for you?
1: I don't think of it as a shift so much as an ongoing questioning that I grew up with. I think certainly as a child, you just go along with whatever is happening around you. And then during adolescence is the time for exploration and assertion of your independence and a bit of rebellion and things like that. So it was during my adolescence that I began to really ask questions, not so much about the Baha'i faith, but about God and the universe and the existence of God and the role of science and the role of knowledge and how we know things all those sort of more deeper existential questions that are there in the background of any religious quest. I think that was spurred on by a particular teacher I had in high school, as well as my best friend, who were very philosophical, as well as very scientific and atheistic. It Challenged a lot of the presumptions that I had along a lot of the assumptions that I had. It was during that time that I began to really delve into some of the core questions that underlie religion and underlie faith that have to do with existence and the purpose of existence and the existence of God
0: and uh, things like that. What did you do after high school?
1: I went to university. I I came from a family that was chocked full of medical people, so there was (laughs) no other path in a way because I didn't know anything else. I went into university to study engineering, biomedical engineering, because uh, it was a science and it was connected to medicine, and I saw it also as a path to medical school. I saw my father growing up as a physician, and it was something I really wanted to do myself. I enjoyed working with my hands, I enjoyed helping people. So it was not a profession that was imposed upon me in any way, but I didn't really have the opportunity during my formative years to explore many other options either. So I went into engineering, biomedical engineering, but after a year of engineering, I had a shift I always sort of thought that, you know, history and humanities and all of those sorts of subjects, you don't need to go to school for that. Why study those at a university level? The sciences, you need somebody sitting by you explaining it, the mathematics, all of that. You need help with that. So that's the perspective I went into university with. But as I was there and during my freshman year began to get exposure to students who I saw were very connected to the humanities and very enriched the humanities, while also taking during the first semester of my second year of university, some very tough engineering classes, I thought that there's probably more to be experienced in university than a engineering major has to offer. So uh, during my second year of university, I actually switched out of engineering, did a double major. I kept one foot in the sciences with a major in biology, but I double majored, and my other major was the history and literature of religion. I kind of dove full on into the humanities with that and had a wonderful experience as a result of that. And I think for me, it was a means of continuing to ask and answer those questions that began during my adolescence with regards to meaning and existence and how different paradigms have made sense of that throughout history.
0: Did you go on to medical
1: school? I did. I did university in the Chicago area. Then I went back to my home state of Kentucky to a medical school. While I was in medical school, decided that I wanted to do ophthalmology or eye surgery and eventually returned to the Chicago area for my training in internal medicine and ophthalmology, which I finished in
0: 1992. So after med school, what did you do?
1: Well, that's where it got interesting. I had always wanted to live and work internationally. As I was finishing up my training, I had a lot of encouragement to pursue Further specialization, you may think that ophthalmology is very specialized in that it's the eye. How much more specialized can you get? But we actually have subspecialists in every area of the eye, the retina, the cornea, neuro ophthalmology, glaucoma. Every part of the eye has its own subspecialists, which involves another year or two of training. And I was very interested in the retina and actually applied for retina fellowships. But at the same time was thinking that if I stay and do a fellowship, I could end up getting stuck in the United States because the next thing after a fellowship is to join a practice or to join an academic faculty. So after a lot of reflection and prayer, I decided that I would forego the fellowship and would leave the United States and seek to practice ophthalmology in an international setting in a place that needed an ophthalmologist.
0: Before we go on, David, why, why did you feel that you didn't want to stay in the United States?
1: I don't know that it was so much a feeling that I didn't want to stay in the United States, but I wanted to work internationally and I wanted to go someplace that needed me. I think that in part came from my parents. I grew up very much with this Sense of working in an underserved area because that's where my father wound up. Also, this idea of going internationally and working internationally came from my parents as well. So there certainly wasn't any sense of, I don't want to be in the United States. It wasn't that I was being pushed from something, it was more that I was being pulled somewhere, and that was to an international setting that needed an ophthalmologist.
0: And where did you go?
1: I sent letters all over the world to every continent and everywhere said, we'd love to have you, but we can't pay you a penny. But there was one hospital in Pongo Pongo in the Samoan Islands that was able to pay a nominal salary. So I wound up at the LBJ Tropical Medical Center in Pongo Pongo, American Samoa.
0: So what was it like working at the medical center in Pango Pango in a, a developing country?
1: It was an amazing experience all around. It was amazing professionally because there hadn't been an ophthalmologist there for about 10 years. So the kinds of things I was seeing and doing were things that many people would never see in their lives as an ophthalmologist. In a lot of the medical cases that I saw, I would call my professors back at Northwestern where I did my training, asking for their help and they would say, we really don't know what to tell you, good luck with that. And in part because of course at the academic center you have everything at your disposal, you have subspecialists to consult with, you have CT scans and MRIs, but I was really there with minimal resources and would just have to make do. There was a lot of trauma there, which was unfortunate, but it was great experience as an ophthalmologist to have that much trauma during my first year out of training. It was an amazing experience in terms of friendships because there were a group of us that were there from the United States that were all a bit alone and seeking friendship, working in different areas of the government to advance the country, so we all had a common goals, even though they were in different areas. A couple of my closest friends worked for the National Park Service and for the Coast Guard, and then there were the others in the medical field. I met my wife there, which adds to the amazingness of the experience, and got to know the indigenous community as well through the Baha'i community, and experience the Essence of life in the Samoan islands. So it was just an incredible, incredible experience.
0: So, what was the Baha'i community like?
1: The Baha'i community was quite mature when the Baha'i faith was first taken to many countries. It was taken by Westerners who had come into contact with the Baha'i faith and were encouraged to go out and make themselves part of communities. So the Baha'i faith had arrived in the Samoan islands in 1953 through a young woman from Australia, Lillian Ala'i. Over the ensuing years, some close to 40 years later when I was there, the vast majority of the Baha'i community were Samoans. The Baha'i faith was fully in their hands
0: Did the king of Samoa become a Baha'i?
1: He did, yes. The king of Samoa became a Baha'i as a result of a message that he received that was sent to the kings and rulers of the world or or reissued to the kings and rulers of the world, I think, in 1968. And I think it was during the early 70s that the king of Samoa declared his allegiance to the Baha'i faith. So how long did you stay and work in Pango Pango? I was there for one year. Towards the end of the year, equipment was starting to break down at the hospital. Because of funding issues, it was not going to be easy to replace them. So there wasn't really much more that I could do by staying there. But by the same token, I'd fallen in love with the Pacific. I consulted with a physician from Hawaii, he was a Pacific Island liaison officer for one of the hospital there. So he would travel throughout the Pacific Islands to improve health care and to help the Pacific Islanders come to the hospital in Hawaii for the more complicated care that they might need. And so I asked him, since he was familiar with the islands in the Pacific, what he thought would be a place that would be reasonable for me to go. A lot of the jurisdictions in the Pacific were dealing with very fundamental primary health care issues, immunization, infectious disease, things like that. And ophthalmology is really, and rightly so, a low priority when those sorts of things are more pressing problems. But he said that the island of Saipan in the Mariana Islands would probably be ready for an ophthalmologist, that there. are Healthcare was past the stage of dealing with only the primary care issues and was now ready for some subspecialists potentially. So I got in touch with the Commonwealth Health Center in the Northern Mariana Islands on the island of Saipan. And they said, sure, we'd love to have you come on out for a few months. Why don't you just do some consulting for us? Let us know what you think about ophthalmology here and the prospect of having an ophthalmologist here. And we'll go from there. So I went out in the fall of 93 to the island of Saipan, worked initially as a consultant for the hospital. Eventually, both myself and the hospital thought that it would be a good idea to have a full-time ophthalmologist. So they created a position for me. And for the next five years, I worked at the hospital there. Mara and I had gotten married in the meantime. And had decided that we wanted to make Saipan home, which was a little bit difficult continuing to work for the government hospital because of uncertainty with regards to funding of the position from year to year. So we left our jobs with the government and opened our own practice, Marianas Eye Institute, in 1998.
0: And did you also get involved in education at that time? We did. How, our, how did you How did you make that leap? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, when we opened the clinic, Mara was like seven months pregnant. So in August of 98, our daughter was born. When she was about a year, year and a half old, we felt like she just wanted something more than what was happening at home and with playmates and things like that. Yeah. So we looked around the island for some sort of a toddler enrichment program or something like that, and we really didn't find anything. We didn't set out to do this, but we just started doing some research, and we came across the work of Maria Montessori and the Montessori method. Her work and Montessori schools are very much focused on early childhood development, uh, beginning at the toddler ages. So... We did a bit of surveying around the island, talking to friends, other parents, and there was a real interest among the parents of Navas playmates to open a Montessori school, not knowing initially what we were doing or what we were getting ourselves into, got in touch with some of the Montessori organizations, talked to one of our dear friends in Saipan who was in education and was ready to try something new. She agreed to join us in the endeavor. She left her job with the government and got Montessori training, and we initially opened Brilliant Star Montessori School as a toddler enrichment program for 18-month-olds through 3-year-olds. With each subsequent year, the families wanted to continue and wanted the school to grow, Currently, the school is goes up through sixth grade and has something like 100, 120 students. Initially, we just opened in a very small space, but were eventually given land by the government, renovated buildings, and raised funds. There's a full-fledged school there. We we found that it is a non-profit and it's run by a board. And Mara and I are actually no longer involved with the school, and it's really rewarding to see how it has continued and Growing and is doing very well.
0: And how about your Mariana's Eye Institute? That continue as well?
1: It's continued as well. We left the Mariana Islands three years ago to move to the Czech Republic. The clinic has continued under the leadership of our CEO there. And I'm involved with it through some Skype meetings and some consultations and helping with the leadership and some of the decision making there. So yes, that has continued as well.
0: So in addition to starting a clinic and starting a school, you also have written a couple of books. And I have to say, David, that the titles of these books are the longest titles I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we start with your first book about world peace? And why don't you provide us with the complete title?
1: (laughs) Sure. World Peace, A Blind Wife and Gecko Tales. Intriguing Thoughts from an Island on Making Life Happier and Healthier and Laughing Along the Way.
0: Very good. So what inspired you to write this book?
1: What this book is, is a collection of columns that I wrote for the newspaper. So starting in 2004, I started writing a weekly column for the Saipan Tribune. I had proposed to write a column that would highlight some of the positive things going on in the world. And it was very interesting that when I contacted the editor, I sent a formal letter and proposed it with a couple of sample articles. He called me and said, you know, we'd like you to be a little more controversial if you can. I said, no way, that's not what I want to do. There's enough in the newspaper going on that's controversial. And I'm really just looking to share some positive things, make people feel better, make people think a little bit deeper, stimulate some meaningful conversations. And it was on the basis of that, that he and the publisher agreed to let me write about whatever I wanted to, essentially. The book is a collection of 52 columns from several years of writing for the Saipan Tribune. Is
0: there an excerpt from that book that you'd like to read?
1: I'll read one of the pieces that was very meaningful to me at the time. This is called Thoughts of a Father. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to wait for a diagnosis of cancer? I now know. Here are my thoughts from the first day this began last week. I think he'll be okay. My son has a 6.5-centimeter lymph node on his neck. Ultrasound shows an 11.4-centimeter spleen. Huge. Upper limit of normal for an adult, much less for a six-year-old child. Blood work mostly normal. No clear diagnosis. Mono test results two weeks away. Thus, the recommendation to biopsy. Look for cancer, lymphoma. Hodgkin's disease, childhood death. I held him as he screamed yesterday, the needle entering his vein, and I thought, I hope and pray this is not the beginning. My sweet six-year-old child, so full of life and joy and determination and creativity and enthusiasm, and lost in his plans to move up from kindergarten to the elementary classroom we take him to M.D. Anderson or Sloan Kettering or wherever could give him the chance for cure. Should he be taken from us, such emptiness would be left all my days. For his sister, her life, a dance with his, she's just two years older, a gaping emptiness. And every day I would talk to his soul beyond and ask for his intercession on behalf of his father for the strength and patience to make it without him. I can imagine all this, but in my heart, it has to just be an exuberant immune response to mono, right, please? How can my child have cancer? Diverse genetic mix, mostly vegetarian diet, clean island air, no carcinogens, it's just not possible. I try to cut a deal with God, save my son, let this all be a lump of nothing, make it all smaller, and I promise I will be good. In however many ways that I'm not, I'll be good. All my personal concerns, various worries, evaporate under the heat of this lump. I saw my friend of long ago last year at a conference How many kids do you have, I asked. Two, he responded, a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. I thought you had twins. We did. One died two years ago, lymphoma. He talked of how this trip to the conference was the first he and his wife had been able to take. There was no time to mourn two years ago. What can you do, he said. You have these other kids that are alive and who need you. They need your love, your presence, your joy, and enthusiasm for them. So you bury one child and try to keep moving forward. The universe and God I do not understand. Suffering and the suffering of the innocent I do not understand. And at times like this, I don't try to understand. Fearing my explanation or theory may just be false placation. It's just the way it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. Will my magical thinking help? Will the universe still respond with your wish is my command? Is my son any more important just because he is mine? Thousands of despondent parents bury their children every day. Death by lymphoma or leukemia or tuberculosis or starvation or war or murder. And the world just keeps going on. I just keep going on, thinking about me, my concerns, my pursuits, my hopes, oblivious to their pain and the fragments of their broken hearts. Why would I be so special as to receive my request from the universe, from God? I feel reticent even to ask. Over the last few years, when death would come up, conversation. Your great-great-grandmother died. Duke died. The cat died. Armand has so often said, I'm scared to die. I don't want to die alone. Can you die with me, Dad? We realized he thinks that the next world is in the ground, somehow related to the grave. How will we be able to see each other if we get buried in different holes, he asked. For most of the day, I'm just doing something else. I look up from my work and wonder what it was that was causing my anxiety. Briefly forgotten, and the knowledge quickly rushes in, pushes the fragile calm out, my tears well up, and I sob.
0: What ultimately happened with your son? He got better. Fantastic. What is the Baha'i perspective about life after death?
1: The Baha'i perspective on life after death has to do with the Baha'i perspective on what a human being is. And a human being consists of a body and a soul. The body disintegrates with death. So we all know that part of it. The soul continues to exist after death and continues to exist for all eternity, which then raises the question of what is the nature of that ongoing existence? It's a spiritual existence. The soul is not a physical entity. As such, it's very difficult for us to grasp such a thing and what such an existence would be like. And so the Baha'i writings give us some analogies of that. One of the analogies is that the next world, the world in which the soul continues to live on, is as different from this world as the world of the womb is to this world. And similarly, as in the mother's womb, the embryo or the child is developing organs and arms and legs and eyes and ears that it really has no use for there. And it can be difficult for it to understand why it needs to spend its time and energy developing these things. Similarly, in this world, we need to develop things that we will need in the next world that can also be puzzling. And uh, what we take to the next world with us are our virtues, the qualities of our soul, things like honesty and trustworthiness and kindness and compassion. So our task in this life is to develop ourselves spiritually to acquire virtues in order that our soul will have the tools that it needs for a happy existence in the next world, the next world is not thought of as two extremes of heaven and hell, as is one paradigm of thinking of life after death, but rather as a continuum of nearness and distance from God. So to live a virtuous life in this world puts us in a position of being closer to God. Some may call that a heavenly existence in the next world. Failing to develop our virtues puts us in a position where we are more distant from God in the next world, which could be like hell. What I mean to say is could be like hell, but not like a physical place, but a state of being. We're also told that we will recognize other souls, people that we have associated with in this world souls in the next world, we are also a source of inspiration and progress to the world of humanity in this world. So those are some of the key elements that come to me when I think of the Baha'i writings on life and death.
0: You wrote a second book with another book. Sure, yes.
1: So this book is Don't Go Blind from Diabetes." an easy-to-understand guide to keeping your vision for people with diabetes.
0: What inspired you to write that book?
1: Well, primarily, we have very high rates of diabetes in the Mariana Islands. Actually, in much of the Pacific, as the Western diet has been adopted, there's probably some genetic predisposition that, combined with this environmental change of the Western diet, has led to very high rates of diabetes. And so I spend much of my days as an ophthalmologist taking care of diabetes, very severe diabetes, and ocular complications of it. So what I realized is that many of my patients didn't know really what was going on when I was talking about different elements of the disease even why they had diabetes and what was going on with that, and how it was affecting their eyes, and what treatments were available, and how it all related to the continuum of diabetic eye disease. I looked around for a resource for them and found that there really wasn't anything. There are a lot of books written about diabetic eye disease, but most of them are written for physicians. So there wasn't a book about particularly that discuss the newer developments in ophthalmology to treat diabetic eye disease. So I decided to write this book for my patients and for all people with diabetes who want to get a better understanding of how to keep their vision, how not to suffer from the ocular complications of diabetes.
0: Does it mostly focus on diet? No, that is at the core.
1: Really, it's at the core of not just diabetes, but most of the chronic diseases we face in the West, whether it's heart disease, various forms of cancer, there is just more and more evidence that it's related to diet, and the best diet we can have is a plant based diet. In my book, I'm focusing more on helping to explain how diabetes causes damage to the eye what the different types of problems are that can arise in the eye from diabetes, and then what we do specifically in terms of the different tests you might encounter in the doctor's office when they're trying to determine the state of your diabetic eye damage and what needs to be done, and then the different forms of therapy for the diabetic eye damage. So lasers play a big role in that. And then a whole new category of biological drugs that we call vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors. So it's very specific to what someone who has not taken good care of their diabetes, whose diabetes is advanced and has resulted in damage to their eyes, what we now need to do as ophthalmologists and what they will face as a patient in an ophthalmologist's office and trying to understand how that all fits together for their individual
0: health care and you had mentioned that a plant-based diet being a healthy diet i think that's consistent with the baha'i teachings no
1: yes there are some references in the baha'i writings that talk about in the future We will have a plant-based diet. So in that sense, it is. The scientific evidence is just huge in terms of the need for that and the need to change for that. The United Nations has also advocated it, as well as the World Health Organization. And there's mounting evidence as well that climate change is perhaps more connected to our appetite for meat-based diet than it is to fossil fuel emissions. So there are a lot of good things about a plant-based diet, but at the core, at a very personal level, it's the best thing you can do for your health.
0: You left your home in 2014 for the Czech Republic. Can you explain to us why you did that?
1: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So... When we were in the Mariana Islands, our eldest daughter, during her freshman year of high school, her ninth grade year, felt like she just wasn't getting quite what she wanted out of her education and out of her social environment there. So she did a bit of research. She had a friend that was attending a school in the Czech Republic called the Townsend International School. And she got in touch with her friend there, and he said, yeah, it's a good school. I'm, I'm enjoying my experience here. So we began to look into the possibility of her going there as a boarding student. Now, I went to boarding school myself, and I swore that I would never send my child to boarding school. You so did was a good experience. It was a good experience, but I think I felt like at that time— There just wasn't the care of the spirit, if that's a good way of putting it. You know, we were 30 guys in a dorm age 13 to 18, kind of all just taking care of ourselves. There were adults in the dorm, but there wasn't what I felt like sort of tender care of these adolescents in that setting. It was through no fault of the school. It's just that the school was primarily an academic institution. But what we learned about Townsend was that they placed a great deal of emphasis on the emotional and spiritual well-being of the students there, particularly the boarding students. And we had known about the school through the years because it was uh, one of the few Baha'i-inspired schools. Now, what that means is that It's not a Baha'i school for Baha'is under Baha'i institutions. It was founded by a couple of people who did very much the same sort of thing that Mara and I did with Brilliant Star School, was they had the need to educate their daughter after they moved to the Czech Republic from Austria at the time that communism ended. So they opened this school, and by Baha'i Inspired, they tried to bring in elements of the Baha'i teachings about this dual nature of man, the need for material education and spiritual education. Also, concepts in the Baha'i writings about what education is. It's a process of mining gems within each soul. The need for material education to be balanced with character education and the acquisition of virtue. So these are all things that are part of the culture of that school and that the school strives to accomplish. So we didn't know very much about it, but we spent about an hour on a Skype call with the director of the school. And by the end of the hour, we felt like our daughter would be well taken care of there. And of course, it was something that she herself wanted to do. And she came to this decision at age 14, which just seemed incredible now that I think back on it. But we decided it was an opportunity for her. And some of the other people that we talked to that had been associated with Townsend over the years said that it would really be a gift to her to allow her to go there. So we sent her to Townsend in the fall of her 10th grade year, and she had a tremendous experience there, a very positive experience, and we decided that we would move the rest of our family there so that our other three children could benefit from that education as well.
0: And in so doing, you became part of the staff of the Townsend International School, right?
1: Right. I can't practice medicine in the Czech Republic because you need to be fluent in Czech before you can get a medical license. Typically say that's something that I'll be able to do in maybe five or six decades. It's <laughs> not a, it's not an easy language. Mara and I both joined the staff at the school. We went in and offered to do some of the things that they just hadn't been able to have people give attention to before. So I spend a lot of my time sort of helping with administrative processes streamlining application processes, employment and student applications, and also trying to give some concerted effort to letting the world know about Townsend and what it has to offer. So those are the key things that I started out doing. And Mara started out helping to develop the summer programs and also the use of the facilities as a conference center as well as helping with recruiting youth year of service and helping to orient them. And of course, we both got involved in teaching as well. So she primarily teaches mathematics and business studies and social action. And I teach biology and ethics and Baha'i studies. Maybe about a third of the students come from Baha'i backgrounds. The majority do not. And within the curriculum, within this element of character development, there's an option for any student to take either Baha'i studies or a class called moral development. It's that component of the curriculum, among some other things, the school does to place emphasis on moral and character and spiritual development. So what do you think the next step is for you? Our family is right now in the midst of actually considering whether we might need to move back to the States for a while. Townsend has been very good for our older children, but our youngest son, who came in in, at the second grade, was it the second grade? Uh, Very young. The grades at the lower levels are really quite small because it's not a boarding school until grade seven. So at that age, his classes were very small, and because of the language barrier, he didn't have a lot of opportunities for after-school activities like being involved with soccer with children his own age and things like that. So we're considering that it might be time to head back to the States for some period of time.
0: That'll be like 20 years since you've lived in the States?
1: Yeah, I think 25, exactly 25 years this July. Yeah.
0: Well, David, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Koram, ophthalmologist, writer, and educator. You can find this interview and other interviews at upahighperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for Up a Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: Your hearts must be lofty. in, your elders luminous, your mind spiritual, that your souls may become, a dawning place for the sun of reality. Let your hearts be like unto two pure mirrors. Reflecting the stars of the heaven, love and beauty. Be like two sweet singing birds perched upon the highest branches of the tree of life. of love and rapture, be like two sweet singing birds, perched upon the highest branches of the tree of life, filling the air with songs of love and rapture. Sun. In the paradise, in the paradise of glory. Graft deeply from the fountain of truth and dwell all the days of your life in the paradise, in the paradise, in the paradise of glory. Graft deeply from the fountain of truth and dwell all the days of your life in the paradise, in the paradise, in the paradise of glory. Quaff deeply from the fountain of truth and dwell all the days of your life in the paradise in the paradise in the paradise of glory Quaff deeply from the fountain of truth and dwell all the days of your life in the paradise in the paradise in the paradise of glory
3: Knowledge 10,000 angels got my back, as yeah. promised. I have the light that you're dying for. I am the strength in the lion's roar. I'm not much different than you, cause I got limits too. Beloved, my creator has defined my code, and that's the point where I pivot at. So any strength that I'm given, I can give it back. Living at times where the world isn't filled with that spiritual vibe. I'm in the field trying to deal with that. Singing that I am the change that I wanna see. Cause I'm a spiritual revolutionary, I am the change that I wanna see. Because I'm a spiritual revolutionary. I am the change that I want to see. Because I'm a spiritual revolutionary. Yo. I am the change that I want to see. Because I'm a spiritual revolutionary.
2: Start the revolution, spiritual in nature, fueled by the fire of our love for the Maker. People say the youth are the future's creators, well the future is now. There is no time for later. But we're lost in a world full of talk. Everybody's ears are always clouded by this dross. We're living in disunity, it leaves us at a loss. I feel like we keep our souls in a box. But now our mission is given, we've got the drive let's be driven. You see our spiritual lyrics are paired with intricate rhythms. We'll make a world we envision, invent a new way of living. Through revolution of the spirit, we accomplish His bidding. So. Let let me tell you the things that you're prepared to know. There's gems of inestimable value that you carry, though. Our spirit, no need to keep it buried, so say it with me. I'ma be a, I'm a revolutionary,
3: yo. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, yo. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, yo. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? spiritual revolutionary when the heroes are named let them mention she with the strength and deeds to swim against the stream let them mention he who lives intentionally whose will won't if the end of seen. let them mention me let them, let mention, them mention we who, we who give a hundred percent body soul and mentally. mentally
2: let them mention we who serve them, bend in the knee and pray the blessings of the most for generously we who rise and fight to see and adjust the justice stands with the voice to answer to cry What's out? The plan? Teachers and keepers of faith and guidance to lead us to battle Erase right. the problems and questions And deaths that we face We, we slowly transform in this
3: unholy place. place
2: The kingdom we build in will bring to waste. We build in dominion we'll So take your place, sing it. It. I am the change I that I want to see Cause I am the spiritual Revolutionary I am the
3: change that I want to see Cause I am a spiritual Revolutionary I am the change that I want to see Cause I am a spiritual Revolutionary, revolutionary. Revolutionary, I am the change that I wanna see. Cause I am a spiritual revolutionary. I am the change that I wanna see. Cause I am a spiritual revolutionary. I am the change that I wanna see. Cause I am a spiritual revolutionary. Revolutionary. Revolutionary.
0: Hey. 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 This is JLP Northampton. FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.